Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. If you heard the Terry and Jesse show on Monday, then you already know that I was on with the boys and with Father Charles Murr talking about Pope Francis's uh, motu proprio from last Friday attacking the traditional Latin Mass. Now, today, I hope to go over that, going to try and go through the entire document. It is uh, uh, relatively brief and only a couple of pages long. And I'm just going to give you kind of my from-the-shoulder reaction to these things, tell you maybe a a story or two from my own personal life. And uh, in the coming weeks then, I I think more important even than the motu proprio itself uh, is the much longer and more detailed letter that accompanied it, Pope Francis's letter to the bishops on the implementation of this motu proprio, which helps to make clear, I think, some of the... uh, some of the articles and, and some of my criticisms of the articles becomes uh, very uh, clear in his letter. Uh, and I'm going to try and do that with a minimum of acrimony and employing the virtue of meekness and not let my uh, emotions get the better of me. So you can say a prayer to that effect unless you really enjoy entertainment because watching somebody melt down can be fun. It's just not necessarily spiritually efficacious. Uh, and so with all that in mind, I want to start as we do usually with the uh, readings from the traditional Latin Mass of uh, this Sunday last, which was the seventh after Pentecost. And so the epistle is taken from uh, St. Paul's epistle to the Romans, uh, chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. He writes, Brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you shall die. But if by the Spirit you mortify, mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. For whosoever are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again in fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. For the Spirit himself giveth testimony to our spirit that we are the sons of God, and if sons, heirs also, indeed of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Now, according to St. Paul elsewhere in Galatians chapter 5, uh, verses 19 through 20, he says, The works of the flesh are fornication, uncleanness, immodesty, luxury, idolatry, witchcrafts, enmities, contentions, emulations, wraths, quarrels, dissensions, sects, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Those who practice such vices are not children of God, and St. Paul says they will not inherit heaven, but instead inherit eternal death in hell. Therefore, if you would gain a crown in heaven, you should examine yourself every single day whether or not you are living according to the flesh, and continually ask for God's assistance to resist your sinful desires. Uh, Pretty clear. And now the continuation of the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, Luke 16, 1 through 9. At that time, Jesus spoke to his disciples this parable. There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said to him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship. For now thou canst, there canst be steward no longer. And the steward said within himself, What shall I do, because my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship? Famous line here, To dig I am not able, to beg I am ashamed. I know what I will do, 
that when I shall be removed from the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. Therefore, calling together every one of his Lord's debtors, he said to the first, How much dost thou owe my Lord? But he said, An hundred barrels of oil. And he said to him, Take thy bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much dost thou owe? Who said, An hundred quarters of wheat. He said to him, Take thy bill and write eighty. And the Lord commended the unjust steward for as much as he had done wisely. For the children of this world are wiser in their generation than the children of light. And I say to you, make unto you friends of the mammon of iniquity, that when you shall fail, they may receive you into everlasting dwellings. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. This is one of the more enigmatic of our Lord's parables. And what is, what is the meaning? It's first to teach us that uh, God requires of everyone a strict account of uh, how they've used what's been given to them, time, talent, and treasure. Number two, to encourage us to be generous, especially to the poor. And number three, to warn us against dissipation and injustice. But it also sees the Lord in the story commend the steward precisely for his chicanery. And concludes with a strange command of our Lord to us that we make unto us friends with the mammon of iniquity. Now, obviously, our Lord is not saying that we should steal or cheat or or use goods uh, otherwise uh, unjustly obtained in order to give alms. Remember, though, this story is a parable. And parables are allegorical stories that are meant to confound our expectations. For example, think of the way the father treats the prodigal son. Uh, in the parable of the prodigal son. He's not upset with him that he's, that he's wasted his inheritance, but he, but he, uh, he embraces him and, and puts a robe and, and, and a ring on him and, and throws him a party. Uh, or, or in the, uh, <clears throat> the, the way that the priest and the Levite ignore the poor man who fell among robbers in uh, you know, the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, the characters and the events in parables are symbolic. And so in this parable... You know, what do they represent? Well, the rich man represents God, and the steward represents us. So the goods that were entrusted to the steward are the different uh, uh, individual graces and gifts of soul and body and and nature and grace that we all enjoy, uh, each one of us individually. And earthly riches are called the mammon of iniquity because they so easily lead us to injustice to greed, overindulgence, debauchery, right? Having a lot of money isn't a key to morality, as we can see in the story of the prodigal son. He wastes his entire inheritance in a very short time in precisely in riotous living. All those things that St. Paul said, if you do those things, you're not going to go to heaven. So when the Lord Jesus <coughs> tells us, pardon me, to make friends of the mammon of iniquity, he means to say that we should, according to our ability, employ in doing good those very worldly goods that can so easily lead us into sin. He says, make friends. And who are the friends, if we're uh, talking allegorically? Who are the friends we're expected to make? Well, the very first one is the good works themselves. Make friends of of doing good works, because uh, it is the good works that make us pleasing to God when they're done for him, done in his grace. These are uh, acts that open heaven to us. Also, the, the friends we make are the poor to whom, uh, uh, whom we help with our alms, and, and hopefully they will pray for us. 
Also, we make friends of the angels and saints, who we know, uh, the Scripture tells us, they rejoice in our benevolence. And so we then, they then become powerful intercessors for us in heaven because they are our friends. And finally, and of course most importantly, it's Christ himself, who, as we know, regards what's given to the poor as given to himself. Right In his own words, uh, he says, Amen, I say to you, as long as you did it to one of these my least brethren, you did it to me. Right, Matthew 25, talking about uh, feeding the hungry and giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, and so on. St. John Chrysostom says, The hands of the poor are the hands of Christ, because through them we send our goods to heaven beforehand, and through the intercession of the poor we obtain the grace of salvation. So grant me, O oh, most just God and judge, the grace to use the goods entrusted to me on this earth that I may make friends of myself to receive me at the end of my life into everlasting habitations. Amen. Now, Father Goffin's explanation of the epistles and gospels is kind of uh, my go-to um, source on uh, the meanings of the uh, readings every week. And um, this time, this week, uh, this for the seventh, uh, seventh Sunday after Pentecost, sorry, got rented lips here. Uh, <laughs> he uses as his main um, uh, instruction the topic of calumny and distraction, which I thought was weirdly providential considering the, the context of what happened to this last week. Now, uh, just so you know, calumny is injuring another person's good name by lying about them. And then detraction is similarly injuring a person's uh, good name, but by, uh, by revealing their sins. Okay, so in other words, hurting their reputation by, by telling the truth about them, but without a good reason. So uh, are these things grievous sins? Are they things that we need to worry about? Is this something that's running rampant in our own lives? Well, we're going to talk about that. Um, uh, briefly when we get back, and also how it relates <clears throat> to my remarks about Traditionis Custodes, the new motu proprio from Pope Francis. Uh, and once again, um, it's important to me, I think, that, uh, that these things be addressed, and I know that a lot of ink has already been spilled, and I have to say I'm going to do my best to, to employ the virtue of meekness, to not let my anger get the better of me, to not allow this to, to just devolve into uh, entertainment, but actually say something useful, because I've already seen, it's already happening on social media especially. And I got to say that, um, you know, I'm ashamed <laughs> of a lot of people and, and what they've said. I'm not going to name names here, again, you know, detraction. <clears throat> but I'm, I'm, I, there's a lot of Novus Ordo Catholics who are reacting with a certain amount of, of glee that I don't think is, is appropriate, considering the deep pain it's causing a great many of their co-religionists. So I'm going to talk about all that and more when we come back. Lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I am your host, Matthew Arnold. We will be back right after these messages, so stay with us. Hi. 
This is Dr. Luis Sandoval from Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You might have heard my show, The Dr. Luis Sandoval Show, where we talk about our health, our spiritual health, our mental health, and our physical health. Well, I want to tell you about an exciting conference coming up August 7th from 9 to 4 p.m. right here at the Sacred Heart Chapel at 381 West Center Street in Covina, California. It's called the Sex and Honor Conference. Is this a topic that you think you want to discuss as a Catholic? Well, this is the time to do it. Please join us at this conference. You can sign up at virginmostpowerfulradio.org to either be here in person or to get the virtual experience. What are we going to be talking about? We're going to be talking about how to discuss sex as married couples, what kind of questions you might have, how do we approach the topic as a married couple, and what does that mean for us in the sacrament of marriage? We're also going to be discussing how do we discuss sex with our children? How do we teach them about it? What questions might they have? Lastly, I'm going to give a talk on what roadblocks we might find in our modern-day society that might not coincide with our Catholic values. We're also going to have speaker Cherie Ballinger, who is one of the producers of the movie Roe vs. Wade. She's going to be letting us know her approach about bringing class and morals back to Hollywood. We're also going to have Mary Danielle Barber speaking to us on theology of the body. She's going to give us an approach from John Paul II as to how we can think about our bodies and make sex honorable and respectful. Please join us for this wonderful conference here at the Sacred Heart Chapel. You can sign up again at virginmostpowerful.org, either to be here in person or to join us virtually. We hope to see you there. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back, No Nonsense Catholic, Matthew Arnold. Uh, Before the break, we uh, brought up the topic of calumny and detraction. Just briefly, again, calumny is injuring another person's good name by lying, and detraction is similarly injuring a person's good name uh, by revealing their real faults, right? So hurting someone's reputation by telling the truth, but without a good reason. So the question is, is calumny a mortal sin? And, uh, well, under the usual occasion or the usual requirements, yes. If uh, the occasion is important, if the slander is deliberate, um, if it's uh, done with an evil intention, if the person is grievously harmed thereby, yes, it's a mortal sin. Uh, and, you know, when, when you see the damage done to someone's good name, I mean, it's, it's really obvious um, how serious and detestable uh, such a sin is. Uh, the other question is, is it, a, is it a mortal sin to listen to calumny? And the answer to that question is also, yeah, under the usual conditions, yes. For thereby, we furnish the calumniator an occasion for sin and give him encouragement. Right? So when, when people put that stuff up on, on uh, social media and you all pile on, you're just cheering him on. You know, St. Bernard uh, of Clairvaux said, whether to calumniate be a greater sin than to listen to the calumniator, I will not lightly decide. In other words, you know, is it worse 
to to calumniate or to listen to calumny is a toss-up. So what should restrain us from this sin? Well, number one, the enormity of it. It's just a terrible sin. Number two, the number of sins occasioned thereby. You see, because the, the, the calumniator, uh, since he's the instigator of this sin, then when other people pile on, he partakes of the guilt of their sins as well because he provided them the occasion. Uh, and number three, the, the difficulty of correcting the harm done. Yeah, it's like trying to put toothpaste back in a tube. Once you tell the lies and spread it out there and ruin somebody's reputation, uh, reversing that is really, really difficult. And, and especially um, since we can't know the full extent of the in- injury. And we can't stop the tongues of people who prefer to believe the lies. So finally, you have to think on the eternal punishment that follows such a sin. You know, the Holy Fathers, uh, you say the Fathers of the Church said that young persons who are condemned to hell, he said the greater part of them uh, is for the sins of impurity. But for the old, it's calumny. All right, so now what about detraction? Is it mortally sinful to disclose the faults of our neighbors Without good reason. Yeah, to make public somebody's sins or faults uh, uselessly. I mean, so for the mere entertainment of the idol, um, so virtually all mainstream media and, uh, and social media that isn't actually calumny pretty much falls under this uh, umbrella, and it's always sinful. However, it is not sinful if there's a good reason to disclose such faults. Suppose little Jimmy and Billy are out behind the gym and, and, and little Billy um, rolls a joint. And little Jimmy says, oh, you shouldn't do that, little Billy. Don't be doing drugs. And, uh, and he says, well, you know, mind your own business. Well, after trying to correct that person's fault, right, by brotherly admission, like it says in Matthew 18, you know, if your brother sins against you, take it to him yourself. And if you won't listen, take two or three. And if you still won't listen, then you take it to the church. And the same thing here. The, you know, little uh, Jimmy goes to little Billy's parents and says, I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this, but your son is smoking uh, dope, you know. And, and that's right to go to the parents or superiors so that he can be punished and, and, and uh, amend his behavior. So in that case, revealing this fault is, is not a sin, but, but actually, on the contrary, it's a good work. It's a work of a duty, even, of Christian charity. Right? So like our, like our Lord said in Matthew 18. For us, you know, especially for those of us who are in media and those of us who are on social media, those of us who are, you know, in leadership positions, parents, teachers, uh, you know, whatever it might be, um, our aspiration should be watch over me. Most loving Jesus, that I might not be so blind either through hatred or envy as to destroy by calumny or detraction the good name of my neighbor and thereby make myself so guilty of, of so grievous a sin. Oh, man. It's particularly providential, as I mentioned before, that this should be the instruction for this week, as I am going to spend the rest of the show analyzing and criticizing the Pope's new motu proprio on the traditional Latin Mass. But there isn't any question of calumny or detraction, because we're going to be looking at his own words, which were broadcast publicly to the whole world. So I'm not uncovering anything uh, scandalous that, that uh, he didn't himself introduce into the conversation. And the motu proprio, Traditionis Custodes, it begins with a general instruction um, on the office of bishop. It, it says, it calls the bishops in union with the Pope, quote, the guardians of tradition. 
which gives the motu proprio its name. Traditionis custodes means guardians of tradition. So let's start there. Ah, it's hard not to see as deeply disingenuous calling a document that is a direct assault on the millennia-long liturgical tradition of the church guardians of tradition. But it is par for the course, I think, for progressives of all stripes, Catholic and otherwise. Um, in the book 1984, George Orwell called it Newspeak. Hate is love, war is peace, etc. You know, and, and of course, a lot of people considered Orwell's novel to be uh, prophetic, this dystopian view of the future. But in reality, he was describing, you know, in, in a fictional and Western setting, what had, in fact, already taken place in the East, in, in Soviet Russia, in Nazi Germany. But, you know, it's funny, Pope Pius X actually beat him to the punch by more than 40 years when he pointed out that modernists uh, employ familiar terms but give them new meanings. The idea being is to get people to accept logical contradictions, to hold two contrary thoughts in your mind at the same time and accept them both as true, which is the, de it's the definition of nonsense or really insanity. And I'll give you an example first from my own experience. At, uh, at our old parish church where I converted, now it's gone now, I got bulldozed to make condos, uh, anyway, after I, my conversion, we got a new bishop in the diocese, and he decided that we should build a new worship space to replace our old church. So the parish hired an architect and, uh, and worked with him, and then we had this big meeting where the, our pastor and, you know, kind of the major donors, the, the families, uh, you know, my wife's family was one of the founding families of the parish. So we were there, uh, and, and we presented this, the, the floor plan to... Uh, an official representative of the bishop. And it was up, you know, a big old thing, you know, uh, uh, mounted on a board on an easel, professionally done by, by the architect to the specification of the pastor and those, uh, you know, the parishioners that were involved in the process. And the priest from the diocese took one look at it, saw that the tabernacle was in the sanctuary, in the middle of the sanctuary, you know, where it belongs. And so he took out a magic marker and on that beautiful, <laughs> beautifully rendered floor plan, he made a big black X through the tabernacle. And then he drew a big black line all the way across the whole thing to make an arrow pointing to what was our, uh, the proposed place for our crying room, you know, which was set off in, in the back and off to the side of the church. And he proclaimed, this will be your new year. You know, you look at the tabernacle, you can't have the tabernacle here. This will be your new Eucharistic chapel. Also, I, I recall he said that uh, he was hoping that we didn't plan on having kneelers in the church because kneeling was a medieval invention and, uh, and that, that should be done away with because, and I'm quoting, Christians are a resurrected people. We should not kneel. This uh, priest of the church. Apparently, he was unaware of Philippians 2, uh, verse 10, which says that in the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those that are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Uh, and, well, no matter, I'm sure he'll get plenty of practice under the earth. Or in heaven, who am I to judge? Okay. Uh, anyway, when the day of the dedication finally came, I visited our new Eucharistic chapel. Now remember, I was 100% Novus Ordo at the time. And I knew very well that according to the Novus Ordo general instruction of the Roman Missal, if the tabernacle is not in the sanctuary... It must be housed, quote, in a part of the church that is truly noble, prominent, conspicuous, worthily decorated, and suitable for prayer. 
And, you know, that can be in the main body of the church, but preferably in its own chapel. Now, our Eucharistic chapel, of course, was often a corner that could not be seen from any seat in the church, the tabernacle behind a wall that could not be seen at all from anywhere in the church. Uh, it was a very small, and you know, it was meant to be a cry room. It was a small room. It was a plain room. Um, it had a glass wall, but they frosted the glass so you couldn't see through it um, because it was no longer a cry room, right? And, and uh, uh, it was plain, bare white walls, beige carpet, handful of wooden chairs, and a plain wooden stand upon which they, you know, reposed the tabernacle. Everything about it was wrong. Everything contradicted the, the directions in the general instruction of the Roman Missal. But when a, a newly minted Monsignor, who was now assigned to our parish, uh, explained all the appointments of our new church at the dedication mass, he said, be sure you know, to visit your Eucharistic chapel, which is conspicuously located prominently in the back of the church. You know, and people were still looking at it, you know, wondering where it was. And he then went on to describe it as noble and worthily decorated and suitable for prayer and meditation. He took the words right out of the general instruction of the Roman Missal, as if to say, don't complain about how your chapel doesn't meet the standards of the general instruction, because we say it does. See, that's how you can dismantle the traditional Latin Mass and call yourself a guardian of tradition. The same thing, think of the people that, that um, you know, here in Los Angeles, uh, to give a secular example, um, there was a kerfuffle just the other day of a, a, a woman and her uh, six-year-old daughter attending a, uh, a ladies-only, uh, you know, very kind of posh, exclusive day spa. And they were there enjoying the waters and in strolls a man completely nude. And the woman naturally, you know, covers up her daughter's eyes and it goes to complain and is told by the management, no, no, that is a woman. Okay, it's a man and he has a man's everything on display. But he says he's a woman, so he is. And, you know, the, the Los Angeles Times did an editorial saying the spa did the right thing. That the woman had no right to complain that a naked man was there amongst these little girls, because he's a woman. Okay, that's the power of, of you know, this progressive newspeak. Now, I got to tell you the thing that I actually thought of immediately when I read that uh, this was, the title was uh, Traditionis Custodes, the Guardians of Tradition. I thought, and this is, <laughs> gives you some clue into the way my mind works, I thought of the old Latin axiom Ipsos es custodiat es custodes, which means who will guard the guardians, right? In other words, what happens, who do you turn to when the leadership is corrupt? You know, and it's interesting because before the Masonic revolutions of the 18th century and 19th century, followed by the, the communist revolutions of the 20th century, the idea of the separation of church and state was unheard of. What does that have to do with this motu proprio? I'll tell you when we come back. That and lots more. No-Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
Okay, Tanya, to clear up uh, where I, the, where the way I left you hanging on the last segment, I'm talking about the motu proprio traditionis custodes, guardians of tradition, and how it made me think of the old Latin axiom, ipsos est custodiat est custodes. Who will guard the guardians? Uh, you know, who, who do you turn to when the leadership is corrupt? And I said that I brought up the separation of church and state, and here's why. Prior to the Masonic revolutions of the 18th century, this was unheard of. You know, uh, the concept of church and state as separate entities was unknown. There were instead, you know, like in the medieval conception of society in Christendom, there were three estates, right? So you have the, those who pray, those who fight, and those who work. So those who pray being the, the clergy and the religious, those who fight being the nobility, right? Because they're the ones that fight the wars and and do the politics. And then those who work, that's the commoners, who are tilling the land and, and raising the, the animals and such. And the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, the blacksmith, uh, all those people that just keep society rolling. And the, those three estates are, are comprised of two spheres, which, uh, which are intertwined. So you have the, not two different entities, but, but you have um, the, the secular sphere and the spiritual or religious sphere and at the very top of the spiritual sphere of course you have the pope um, and then at the top of the secular sphere it was the holy roman emperor and it was the pope who crowned the holy roman emperor and gave him his legitimacy and i can tell you after the fall of of the old roman empire in the west the holy roman empire um, primarily consisted of territory in germany and italy Uh, its power was never all that extensive, neither was its geography. But the Holy Roman Emperor was invested with great authority. The Pope had the authority to crown the Emperor, but the Emperor had the power to veto the papal election. So in other words, the enemies of Christ knew that there was no way to bring down the Church except from within. You know, Taylor Marshall's book, uh, Infiltration, um, is it, you know, I mean, it will explain it to you. It's really nothing new. It's, it simply rehearses what traditional Catholics have been saying for more than 100 years. But the question is, how do, how do the Masons, for example, infiltrate the Church, possibly even put one of their own on the papal throne? How do you do that if the emperor can judge him unfit and veto the election? Well, now you know what World War I was really about. It was about dismantling that authority so that there would be no checks and balance. Now, every Catholic prophecy from Holy Scripture to the 20th century agree on this point, that the restoration of Christendom will happen, number one, and number two, that it will be accomplished under the direction of an angelic pope in league with a great Catholic monarch. And that's one of the reasons I'm not worried about our situation here, our time being the end of the world, because we have the promise of heaven that there will be a restoration of Christendom. And so I tell you right now, we should be praying not only for a great pope, but for a return of Catholic monarchy. Now, that's, that's a whole show or series of shows, and I hope to get to it before the end of the year. But um, it tells you who will guard the guardians. There really is an answer. It just needs to be restored, like so many things that were lost um, in, in the centuries of revolution that we've you know, paying the price for now. All right, so the next paragraph in the, in the motu proprio begins, quote, in order to promote the concord and unity of the church. 
Well, there's another one of those words, unity, unity. The letter to the bishop that accompanies this motu proprio, and I think in many ways it's more important because it's much longer and it goes into kind of detail what the Pope expects um, from the reaction of the motu proprio. It gives more, you know, some of his reasons behind the things we're going to talk about. But uh, it uses the word, that letter to the bishops uses the word unity 32 times. Unit in one of the most pap- divisive papal documents in centuries. The claim is it's going to bring about unity. See, in the words of the great Spanish swordsman Inigo Montoya, you keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. Okay. And more on that in the weeks to come. But in order to promote the concord and unity of the church with paternal solicitude, okay, that's fatherly care, fatherly love with paternal solicitude towards those in any region, so any, anywhere in the world, who adhere to liturgical forms antecedent to the reform willed by the Vatican Council II. Okay. <laughs> More on that in a minute. My venerable predecessors, St. John Paul II and Benedict XVI, granted and regulated the faculty to use the Roman Missal edited by John Twenty-Third in 1962. In this way, they intended, quote, to facilitate the ecclesial communion of those Catholics who feel attached to some earlier liturgical forms and not to others, unquote. So there's two glaring falsehoods in this paragraph. First, that the Novus Ordo Missae was willed by Vatican II, and second, that Benedict XVI granted and regulated the facility, or the faculty, rather, to use the 1962 Missal. So, beginning with the latter, while uh, John Paul II did grant the use of the 62 Missal under indult, Benedict XVI did away with that. In fact, his motu proprio, ah, motu proprio, thank you very much, Sumorum Pontificum, granted no permissions at all. On the contrary, it recognized that no permission was necessary because every Roman Catholic priest has the right to celebrate the, the, the Tridentine Mass, of which... John the 23rd, 62 Missal was the, the last revision. In fact, he acknowledged that technically there was never any need for John Paul II's indult because the traditional Latin Mass was never abrogated and in fact cannot be abrogated. In his own letter to the bishops that accompanied his motu proprio, Benedict XVI said, I, declared the obvious truth, that, quote, what earlier generations held as sacred remains sacred and great. For us, too, he says, it cannot be all of a sudden entirely forbidden or even considered harmful, which is precisely, of course, what this uh, current motu proprio is about, claiming it is harmful and looking for its eradication. You know, it, it, it's an attempt to do both. And, and I think that it cannot be a coincidence that this new motu proprio was issued on the 70th anniversary of Benedict XVI's priestly ordination because it is a direct repudiation of the single most important work of his pontificate. I I, I tell you, the whole Reformation, Restoration, whatever you want to say it, the whole renewal of the Church has hinged on this one thing. It contradicts his specific teaching, quote, it behooves all of us, talking to the bishops, as Benedict XVI talking to the bishops, it behooves all of us to preserve the riches which have developed in the church's faith and prayer 
and to give them their proper place. Now, as for the Novus Ordo Mise being, quote, willed by Vatican Council II, unquote, that's just false. And you can read Sacrosanctum Concilium is the dogmatic constitution on the liturgy from Vatican II, and you can read it until your eyes bleed, and you are not going to find any mandate or even suggestion for a new order of the Mass. Now, obviously, there's talk of, of revision, and that is something that, that happened, um, you know, uh, it happened before. I mean, most drastically with the 1955 revision of Holy Week. That was a very drastic revision, uh, and the, the 62 Missal uh, uh, in ways. You know, it, it suppressed the second confidier, for example, and uh, and um, what else? It, it uh, added St. Joseph to the canon, of scripture, which was considered untouchable for a thousand years. All right? Uh, he, he adds a, a name to the canon. Now we have nine different canons. All right? But, but he, John the Twenty-Third, kind of opened the ball by doing uh, almost the unthinkable. But the fact of the matter is, the revision called for by Vatican II was accomplished. You know, I'm holding it in my hands. I have here my parish mass book and hymnal according to the new revised liturgy for every day. This is a booklet. Uh, it belonged to my mother-in-law. Printed in 1965 by Catholic Book Publishing Company, the mainstream Catholic publisher in the United States. And it is taken, uh, reproduced with permission from the Roman Missal with English translations approved by the National Conference of Bishops in the United States published by the authority of the Bishop's Commission on the Liturgical Apostolate, circa 1964. And in the preface it says, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy emphasized the communal nature of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass and the importance of the people taking their rightful parts. And so here it is. And you can see, uh, it's very much like the traditional Mass, but you can also see where they added things. You know, they've got the, uh, uh, the Prayer of the Faithful, they uh, kind of suppress the prayers before, at the foot of the altar. Uh, the prayer of the faithful is there. Um, they refer to it as the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, a lot of things that we uh, would consider um, features of the, of the new Mass. But it was still, it was, but, it's just, but it's a revision of the traditional Mass. It's not a whole brand new thing. That is something that uh, Paul VI undertook on, on his own. Right, uh, he um, unilaterally imposed a fabricated liturgy onto the church. There is no uh, parallel. There's no. There's no. There's nothing that ever before had uh, of the like. Never had a Roman pontiff taken such an action in the entire history of the church. Never. And please understand, I have publicly, even in my book here, I'm going to hold it up, Confessions of a Traditional Catholic. Okay, from Ignatius Press. Uh, I, I publicly argued and defended Pope Paul's power to change the liturgy. Liturgy, uh, you know, it's a matter of church law, and the Pope is the supreme legislator. Now, I considered it a, a, a tragic lapse of prudential judgment. I, it's, in fact, it's wildly imprudent. And the chaos and loss of faith that followed in its wake was also entirely predictable. But technically, he had the power to do it. But now here's the thing. Did you ever, do you ever wonder why it is uh, that Paul VI or John Paul II didn't abrogate the traditional Mass? I mean, that was the point that Benedict XVI made, is that that Mass was never abrogated. Why didn't they simply abrogate it? 
why, why did they print Quo Premium at the beginning of every missile from 1574 till 1962? Well, I've got, a, I've got a pretty good guess. I'll share it with you when we come back. Lots more right after this. apologize in advance for being so verbose because we're clearly not going to make it all the way through the document today, but we'll pick it up again next week and then move on to the bishop's letter. Before the break, um, I mentioned that uh, no previous pope, um, prior to Francis, as I'm sorry we'll see um, later on, but no previous pope since, uh, you know, the, the Novus Ordo has ever dared to declare that the traditional mass was abrogated. And it may be, and I'm just guessing, mind you, and it may be because quo primum includes this little clause. And this is why perhaps quo primum, you know, with all the revisions that have been done, maybe eight or nine revisions over, over whatever, 500 years, um, we've seen, oh, you know, adding feast days and so forth, correcting printer's errors. And then, you know, in the 20th century, like I said, the Holy Week of 55, very drastic uh, revision. Uh, same thing with the 62 missiles, some pretty some pretty drastic revisions there, but always under the aegis of Quo Primum, always with Quo Primum in the missile as the preface. So as to say, this new missile, this revision does not contradict Quo Primum. And, and it might just be because Quo Primum includes this little clause, quote, accordingly, no one whosoever is permitted to infringe or rashly contravene this notice of our permission Statute, ordinance, command, direction, grant, indult, declaration, will, decree, and prohibition. Okay, covers all the bases. Should any person venture to do so, let him understand. He will incur the wrath of Almighty God and the blessed apostles Peter and Paul. I, for one, believe in papal blessings, and that means that I believe in papal cursings as well. Fact of the matter is, there's a lot of stuff going on in the Catholic Church that needs attention and is being ignored. And we have a, a, a problem here that seems to be that the traditional uh, sector of the Church is the only part of the Church that's growing instead of shrinking. Now, the document continues, quote, In line with the initiative of my venerable predecessor, Benedict XVI, to invite the bishops to assess the application of the Motu Proprio Samorum Pontificum, Pontificum three years after its publication, right, which didn't happen for whatever reason. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith carried out a detailed consultation of the bishops in 2020. Good time to do it since they, uh, during that time they had in fact closed all the churches. The results have been carefully considered in light of experience that has matured during these years, presumably since the 2007 uh, Motu Proprio Samorum Pontificum. Now, what was this detailed consultation? Well, it was a survey. They sent a survey to the bishops. And surveys, as we know, are sociological. Pope Francis's Motu Proprio is entirely ideological. So why, why the response? How many bishops even responded? What were their responses? What were the percentages? I mean, do a majority of the world's bishops really have a problem with the traditional Latin mass? Uh, a significant minority? Uh, you know, what are the concrete examples they give of 
the traditional mass hurting their, you know, the, the, the faith in their dioceses. You don't need a degree in sociology to tell the difference between an empty church and a full church. I mean, I talked about this on Monday, that I've been all over the Anglophone world. Everywhere that they speak English, uh, pretty much except England, I've, I've been. I've been all over North America, pretty much all 50 states. I mean, I, I'm sure I missed a few, but pretty much. I've been on, uh, on the West Coast, the East Coast, and the interior of Canada. I did a three-city tour of Australia, gave nine talks, a radio interview, a newspaper interview in, in seven days, okay? And everywhere I went, wherever there were parish churches where the, the uh, ordinary form and extraordinary form is better seen through the habit, where the Novus Ordo and the traditional Mass were both being celebrated. In every case, the Novus Ordo was better celebrated and better attended. In every case, without exception. I know that's anecdotal, but so are surveys. You know, I mean, we don't have, where is the concrete evidence? Where's the smoking gun that there's really a problem here? I mean, I don't think you need super secret surveys to understand that traditional Latin communities are growing and the Novus Ordo is in virtual freefall. You know, you don't need a degree to tell the difference. There just doesn't seem to be any visible evidence of a crisis or a problem stemming from people worshiping according to the mass of, the, of their fathers. However, the Pope seems to be saying, well, hey, trust me, I saw the responses, and there's definitely a good reason to abolish the traditional Latin Mass. Now, I'm not going to tell you what it is exactly. No, you can't see the results. Just trust me. Trust me to fix it. See, at this point in his pontificate, and I'm sorry to say this, but candidly, I'm afraid that with a great number of Catholics, he's lost the benefit of the doubt. You know, I, I, for one, am not ready to abandon my patrimony for, uh, you know, my liturgical, liturgical patrimony for a mess of Novus Order pottage without seeing at least one shred of evidence that there's any real problem beyond the fact that it, uh, you know, that traditional Catholicism and modernism don't mix. But considering the Synod on the Family, Amoris Laetitia, uh, the response to the dubia, the Cardinal McCarrick scandal, the drug-fueled homosexual orgies at the Vatican, the, the financial scandals, etc., etc., etc. Forgive me if I don't hold out much hope. And yet he tells us, quote, at this time, having considered the wishes expressed by the episcopate and having heard the opinion of the congregation for the doctrine of the faith, I now desire with this apostolic letter to press on evermore in the constant search for ecclesial communion. Therefore, I have considered it appropriate to establish the following. And then he gets into the, the articles, several articles of the actual uh, uh, document. And I'll maybe I'll be able to hit one or two before the show ends, and then we'll pick up here next week. Number one is the liturgical books promulgated by St. Paul VI and St. John Paul II in conformity with the decrees of Vatican Council II, again, okay, uh, are the unique expression of the lexerandi of the Roman Rite. Well, so what does that mean? Unique equals only. So the Novus Ordo, he says, is the only expression of the law of prayer in the Catholic Church, in the, Ro in the Roman Catholic Church. And, you know, and the papal apologists are already out there on social media already assuring us, no, Pope Francis, he's not abandoning, he's not abolishing the traditional Latin Mass. But well, what does this mean? And then you go to Article 2, it belongs to the diocesan bishop as moderator, promoter, and guardian of the whole liturgical life of the particular church entrusted to him 
to regulate the liturgical celebrations of his diocese. Therefore, it is his exclusive competence to authorize the use of the 1962 Roman Missal in his diocese according to the guidelines of the Apostolic See. So in contradiction to uh, Benedict XVI's teaching that every Roman Catholic priest has the right to say the traditional Latin Mass, it's now the bishop's decision, but not really, because it's his decision, but only under the guidance of Rome. So once again, the Pope of Synodality and Collegiality is saying, um, my way or the highway. Article 3, the bishop of the diocese in which until now there exist one or more groups that celebrate according to the Missal antecedent to the Reform of 1970. So uh, this only applies to where the traditional Latin Mass is already being licitly celebrated. Uh, And he, firstly, and there are several points under this article, firstly, is to determine that these groups do not deny the validity and legitimacy of the liturgical reform dictated by Vatican Council II and the Magisterium of the Supreme Pontiffs. So, I and thousands of Catholics like me have undergone every imaginable kind of persecution and marginalization and ridicule from our own shepherds and from our our, our fellow sheep just in order to celebrate this Mass in full communion with the Church. And we celebrate in diocesan churches where the Novus Ordo Mass is likewise celebrated. And typically we have our Mass at at odd times and rarely, if ever, daily, typically only on Sunday and if we're lucky on Holy Days of Obligation. But the vast majority of traditional Catholics, for them to follow Pius X's admonition to frequent and, if possible, daily communion, it means they must regularly attend the Novus Ordo Missae. It's only the most radical groups that are outside the diocesan structure that hold that the Novus Ordo is invalid, and they're not quiet about it. You don't have to wonder who they are. So, again, this is directed at the people who are following the rules. Secondly, under Article uh, 3, <coughs> it is, uh, the bishop is to designate one or more, one or more locations where the faithful adherents of these groups may gather for the Eucharistic celebration, not, however, in the parochial churches and without the erection of new personal parishes. So, the bishop is to take away the traditional Mass from my church and not designate any new churches for that purpose. So where do we go? YMCA? Uh, uh, Hotel Ballroom? The Rocks on the Coast of Ireland? Where they celebrated Mass when it was outlawed by Queen Elizabeth? See, my family celebrated math in gymnasiums and community centers and old hotels. And I can remember when the Anglican Ordinariate celebrated their, their first anniversary down in Orange County in Orange Diocese. And they were saying mass at the old St. Joseph Church in Santa Ana. Beautiful, 100-plus-year-old uh, neo-Gothic Catholic church. Absolutely beautiful. Uh, we were there for their one-year anniversary um, the, the, the ministers at the altar and, and the choir, that, the formerly Anglican choir, um, actually outnumbered the congregation. And, uh, and I thought it was something. So I brought the family the next week. And afterwards, there's a little reception. You know how you have coffee and donuts. Of course, it's, you know, we're having mass at, at you know, 5, 6 o'clock at night, whatever it was. Um, and, and we all retired to the school that was adjacent to the old church. And, you know, it's just kind of a rundown school. And my son said something. 
that really st- struck me. It was kind of a poignant moment. Because, you know, traditional Catholics tend to be people that appreciate the finer things. Truth, goodness, beauty in regard to art, music, liturgy, of course, um, food, and so on. And um, <laughs> we were there with the Anglicans in this rundown old schoolroom where the only art was, you know, in crayon, <laughs> thumbtacked to the wall. And, you know, in, in, a, in a, these beautiful surroundings of, of tiny desks and those little miniature plastic chairs. And, um, and my son, who was a teenager at the time, turned to me and says, yeah, he says, there, trads, here we are in some rundown old schoolroom drinking good wine out of Dixie cups because that is what he had grown used to because that, that, that is the way that traditional Catholics are treated when they're in the church following the rules. Okay, so more on this next time we gather together. Please pray for me. I will pray for you. Let us all, on all sides of this object, try and remain charitable and try and employ the virtue of meekness and not give in to anger or respond to what I consider, you know, something that's imprudent and uh, not wealth. You know, let's let us not respond in kind. Let me put it that way. As we know uh, how this ends and we know our good Lord's promise. And until next time, may God richly bless you and your family from Virgin Most Powerful Radio.